When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host, and today we'll be talking with Melissa Estes Blair, author of Bringing Home the White House, The Hidden History of Women Who Shaped the Presidency in the 20th Century. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling us something about yourself and how you got started on this project. Sure. Um, So I'm a history professor at Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. Um, And this is my my second book. My my first book, which grew out of my dissertation, was a study of grassroots feminist activism in the 1960s and 1970s. So I've always been sort of interested in women in politics. Um, That's always been my, my main focus in my scholarship. But for this project, what took me into the archives, the the research question that I first was interested in was I just wanted to see how presidential campaigns had thought about women voters, because the sort of story that was out there in both the history and the political science scholarship was that after uh, sort of the late 1920s, so of course women get the right to vote in 1920, that by the late 1920s, politicians had sort of figured out that there wasn't such a thing as a women's vote exactly, that all women didn't vote the same way, and so the analysis that's in the, the scholarship that was out there was that once they figured that out, politicians kind of didn't think about women as voters until feminists made them in the in the very late 1960s and 1970s. And I just was curious if that was true. Um, and so trying to sort of poke at that argument and research in that, that, that gap, that time period between the late 20s and the late 60s um, was what took me into the archives. So the five women that I write about I did not go looking for. Um, I had only heard of one of them uh, before I started this project. And then I got into the archives and they just jumped out of the archives at me. Now, you start the book with a description of India Edwards on October 1951. Tell us about her role in politics and specifically director of the women's division of the Democratic National Committee. Sure. So Edwards is the director of the women's division, as you said, of the DNC um, throughout Harry Truman's presidency. Um, So she starts working, uh, volunteering with the women's division during the 1944 campaign, and then um, becomes, after there's some transition, after uh, FDR dies in 1945, and there's this very unsettled period for about 18 months. But by February of 1947, she's the director of the the women's division. And she is the fourth director of a permanent women's division 
that the DNC has had. It, it becomes a permanent office uh, in 1933. And she's really responsible, as her predecessors were, um, for connecting women and the White House. Uh, and that connection goes both ways. She is both getting information from Democratic women throughout the country about sort of their policy concerns, about how certain issues are playing out in their local communities. And she sort of funnels that information into the Truman White House. But she also sends a tremendous amount of information out to the women throughout the country um, newsletters and flyers and all of this information that they are instructed to use to strike up political conversations with their friends and neighbors. Um, all five of the women that I write about who are, who are the women's division heads across both parties um, from the 1930s to the 1950s, the phrase that they use is that women are the, quote, saleswomen of the party at the grassroots level. And it's their job to get out there, um, especially during campaign seasons, but really all the time um, to be going out and having these political conversations and, and selling the accomplishments of the administration to other people, not just to other women, but to other people in their in their communities. You then talk about Molly and her pioneer role. Tell us about her. Yeah, so Molly Dusen is, is the founder of this structure. Um, she is a friend of both Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt, um, she and Eleanor meet uh, in the at the Women's City Club in New York City in the mid-1920s. And Molly Dusen remains a sort of close ally of the Roosevelts uh, for the rest of, of all of their lives. And so she is, she is the pioneer. Um, in the 1920s, there had been like directors of women, sort of women's activities offices, directors of women's activities that would emerge for the campaign itself but then would go away once once a campaign was over. And so what happens is that Dusen is asked, is given this task of organizing uh, women as uh, sort of party workers for the 1932 campaign, um, for the first campaign to get to get Roosevelt elected. But then after he wins, FDR and Jim Farley, who's his campaign manager and the head of the DNC, ask her to turn it into a permanent office. Um, ask her to be the to create this sort of permanent way for this this two way interaction between women and the administration to be happening. And so all of that, the things I mentioned, India doing, you know, sending flyers and newsletters to women throughout the country, instructing them to strike up political conversations, telling them that they're the saleswomen of the party. Um, Dusen is really the one who pioneers all of that, and especially the notion of using this group of Democratic Party women to get information back to Washington. I think her, her innovations there are particularly important. Um, she does, develops this thing called the reporter plan, in which there's a woman in every county in the country whose job it is to send regular letters back to Washington reporting on how the New Deal is going in their community. What's working, what's not, what are people complaining about, what do people love? Um, and it becomes a vital source of grassroots information for President Roosevelt and the New Deal. And so, and everything that she does just works very, very well. Um, her, her women's division produces 90% of the print media, for example, for the 1936 campaign. And so because the structures that she builds work so well, um, they then persist after she retires. She retires after the 1936 campaign, but uh, the Democrats keep going with the same structure that she builds 
throughout uh, the rest of FDR and Truman's presidencies. And then the Republicans adopt the system that she built pretty much wholesale and are using it when Eisenhower's in the White House. Now, most of the women that you discuss were leaders during the 20th century. They were Democrats and only one Republican woman. What did this say about women during this time period? Well, I want to emphasize that I'm not, there are Republican women doing this work in the period at the, at the grassroots, sort of at the grassroots level. Um, I only write about one Republican woman because one of the things that I was interested in was how does the work that these women do shape the ideas about women that are in the White House that are influencing policy. And so I'm, I'm only looking at the winners of the campaigns. Um, but there are certainly, you know, to, to that, if you're trying to answer that question, it kind of doesn't matter what Thomas Dewey thought about women. Um, but there are certainly Republican women who are who are doing similar work in the 1930s and 1940s. So I don't want to create the impression um, that only the Democrats care about women in that time period. That's that's not at all the case. Um, but it just the way that my research question sort of fell out. And also there's an excellent book um, with the title simply Republican Women by a historian named Catherine Rimpf that sort of covered that ground already on what's going on on the Republican side in the in the 30s and 40s. And so that's why the, the book looks the way that it does. It's not that the Republicans aren't doing this work. They are doing it. It looks a little different on the Republican side, um, but they are definitely sort of still doing the work in the 30s and 40s. I don't focus there just because I'm focusing on the women who are in the White House, who have the ear of the president. And so that's why, just given the chronology that I'm working with, we have um, four Democratic women and one Republican woman. Thank you. Now, you talk about women as critical swing voters. Tell the audience more about this. What did you find? Yes. So this is something that's that starts to be true in 1944. Um, so during the 1930s, women are not seen as a swing voting bloc. But then what happens in 1944, and this was one of the most surprising things to me in my research because it's so obvious and yet no one has written about it, because of World War II, because millions of men are deployed overseas, and while there are mechanisms for soldiers to vote ab uh, absentee, those mechanisms are very cumbersome. They're very difficult, and so not that many soldiers vote in the 1944 presidential election. What that means is that women are the majority of voters for the first time. And that leads to this big change in seeing women as a as a group of voters that needs to be needs to be wooed, needs to be spoken to. Um, this changes the work that the women's division leaders do. Um, the women's division leader for the DNC uh, in the 1940s is a woman named Gladys Tillett. And Tillett has a lot more visibility than her predecessors had, right? Molly Dusen is a behind the scenes actor. She's writing letters, she's corresponding, she's in meetings with DNC leaders, but she's not giving a ton of speeches. She's not on the radio all the time. Tillett during the war, because they're having to pursue women voters, is much more visible. Um, she gives the keynote speech at the first night of the Democratic National Convention, for example, and she's just much more visible. And then that persists throughout the post-war period, the rest of the 1940s and the whole of the 1950s. Um, women really are seen as a swing voting block. Um, in 1948, uh, when Truman unexpectedly wins re-election, right, this is the famous Dewey uh, defeats Truman uh, election, 
Um, when Truman wins unexpectedly in 48, women are one of the groups that are credited with that victory. They keep voting Democratic. They don't swing to the Republicans. Um, but then they do swing to the Republicans in 52. The majority of, of women vote for Eisenhower in 52 and again are seen as one of the important constituencies whose votes decided uh, the campaign. And so what you see coming out of the women's division material out of their flyers, out of their newsletters, is in the 30s, that material was much more geared towards why should an undecided, any undecided voter support Roosevelt? In the 40s and 50s, the material gets much more gendered. It's much more why should you as women uh, support FDR in 44, Truman, Eisenhower? Um, what does he, what does this particular president uh, how does he speak to women's concerns? Um, and so that's it's a really clear shift that happens, um, largely because of those demo demographics of the war. Now, the radio. Tell us more about who were the listeners and how did they use the radio? Sure. It, this is one of my favorite parts of the one of my favorite things to discover, actually, was kind of that that nuts and bolts of how do you do a campaign? Um everyone's listening to the radio, right? In the 30s and 40s, obviously, it's the, the main form of media because we don't have television yet. Um, even in the 1950s, by the mid-50s, when TV has become much more mainstream, um, I found this fascinating document that argued that for things that are appealing to women voters, you should keep using the radio because, and this is, I'm going to paraphrase the quote here, but it's something like, um, Sitting down to watch the TV interrupts a housewife's day, but she can listen to the radio while she's doing her work. So there was very much this belief that the, that radio was the most important, uh, the most important media uh, source for reaching women voters. And I want to talk about how they used it. I'm going to tell a story about the the 1948 campaign and some and the work that India Edwards did. One of the major issues in the 1948 campaign was inflation. Um, the, the Republicans had gotten control of Congress in the 1946 midterm, and at the beginning of 1947, they had eliminated all of the price controls that were still in place coming out of World War II, and this had led to prices rising quite rapidly over the course of 1947 and into 48. And so this is a central issue of the campaign for everyone. Um, Truman talks about this, this issue you know, at speeches in union halls. It's not just an issue that's speaking to women, but it speaks to women very directly because they're the ones who are doing the shopping by and large. And so how this ties into radio is that uh, Edwards decided that for the last month of the campaign, so for the month of October, um, the women's division was going to, to record and distribute two radio programs a week talking about why women should vote for Truman. And in order to dramatize the inflation issue in those radio speeches, at the beginning of September, she sends a letter to women, Democratic women leaders in about 15 cities all over the country. And she assigns them specific days. So I'm making up like the days in the cities here, but this is how it worked. So say on October 5th, for example, she wants women in Kansas City, Atlanta, and Seattle to go and buy pork chops, green beans, and soap. And then she instructs the women to go and do that shopping on that particular day and then to send a telegram because the mail is slow and long distance calls are expensive and complicated. So they then send a telegram to the women's division office saying how much they paid 
for those items on that particular day. Staff in the women's division office then takes the the uh, the price controls guide from the Office of Price Administration and gets how much you would have paid for those items at the end of 1946. And the difference between those two numbers then gets folded into the script for the radio program that the women's division is going to record the next day. And so it's this fascinating example of how you get sort of grassroots, real-time information into what the campaign is doing and how the campaign is selling itself to voters. In chapter one, you gave us more information about Eleanor Roosevelt and the women's division in the 1920s. Tell us about her work schedule and what was she able to accomplish? Yeah, this was surprising to me. I had no idea about this. Um, and I'm actually, I'm, I'm for that section, mostly pulling from uh, David McLeidy's uh, recent biography of her, simply called Eleanor. Um, she was the director of women's activities for Al Smith's 1928 campaign for the presidency, which I had no idea of. Um, and she's putting in, she's mostly working during the primary season when they're, or the, the time before the convention, I shouldn't say the primary season, there weren't really primaries yet. Um, but in the months before the convention, before Smith is the nominee, was mostly when she was working in that role. Um, but she is putting in incredibly long days. Um, she's often at the, at the office until midnight. Um, the people who worked with her remembered her very much as a, even though she was the head of it, very much as a colleague rather than a, than a boss necessarily. And the main thing that she's doing, and this is something that, uh, that she pulls Molly Deucin into this work. This is the first time they work together and Deucin really takes these lessons and applies them to, to FDR's campaign four years later. Um, the main thing Eleanor is doing is correspondence, right? She's building up this national network of women by writing back and forth to women throughout the country all the time. And both the work that, that Eleanor is doing in 28 and that Molly will do in 32, they're really trying to build up this network in places where the Democratic Party is not already strong. So for example, places like Chicago and New York that have sort of strong Democratic Party machines really already in place, the women's division is not doing a whole lot in those places. There are certainly women there that are that are participating in women's division activities, but it's not their focus. Their focus both for, for Eleanor in, in 28 and Deucin in 32 is really on women in other parts of the country. So for example, um, Eleanor sends Molly to St. Louis um, in 1928, and she's doing work in that sort of Midwest region, um, corresponding with women throughout uh, Missouri and, and Illinois, um, trying to build up those, those connections. In 1932, early that year, um, Molly does a train tour throughout uh, the Rockies and West Coast uh, to try to build up support for FDR's campaign there. And so it's really, it's both the correspondence piece and the, the geography of where should the women's division um, really focus their efforts. Both of those are, are things that uh, Molly really learns from working with Eleanor in 1928. Now, moving on and looking at the donkey banks and yes. speeches, tell us about that. So the donkey banks are, are great. There's a, a great picture in the book um, of Molly sitting at her desk with a whole bunch of these things in front of her. This was something that she rolled out in 1935. And, you know, you have to think about the mechanics of doing a campaign during the depression, right? Money is tight for everyone. 
But if you're going to have this, what was a very sort of print and labor intensive system, they're, they're printing a lot of things, they're mailing a lot of things, they're having a lot of meetings and sending women to distribute material pretty widely. All of that takes money, right? You have to pay your printing fees, you have to pay your telephone bills, you have to pay for gas. And so the donkey banks, women who were active in the party um, could buy one of these and they were supposed to like put a nickel a week into it. And then once a month, when county Democratic women would meet every month, they would pool those funds out of their little piggy banks, donkey banks. Um, and that was the money that was used to pay the office fees for that county. And by 1936, um, Dusen has made the women's division at the at the local level pretty much completely self-sufficient. There's a letter where she says, if you can't afford the gas based on this fundraising that you've done through this mechanism, then you don't go on the trip. You don't go give a speech in this place or that place where you were going to have to pay for gas. And it's really, it's part of how Dusen maintains the independence of the women's division within the broader DNC, within the broader Democratic National Committee, because she's completely independent. There is not a man that is you know, approving the stuff that she does or any of her plans, she is running her own shop. And there's a great exchange of letters uh, in 1936 where Charlie Mickelson, who's the head of the publicity division for the DNC, someone whom you would imagine might have some input into uh, the main publicity that the women's division produces are these things called rainbow flyers, which are just flyers that outline their administration's position on a particular issue. Mickelson has no part in approving these, writing these. They're all written by women. They're all produced by the women's division and they're incredibly effective. And so there are men in the DNC who want to use them at the local level. And there's this great exchange of letters where Mickelson writes to Deucin and says, hey, some of the guys would like these. And Deucin writes him back and she's like, that's nice, but they need to pay for them. Um, they don't get them for free. They will pay for them, just like women are paying for them at the local level through this donkey bank system. Um, and then, and she also has some other rules about like how many she'll send. But this, the economic self-sufficiency of the women's division that the donkey banks helps help uh, create at the local level is one of the things that she really emphasizes and really helps maintain this independence for the women's division. 1940s. Tell us about Crystal Bird Fawcett and her role in the 1940 campaign. Yes, so Crystal Bird Fawcett is uh, from Philadelphia. She was the first African-American female uh, legislator in the Pennsylvania State Legislature. She'd served, uh, been elected earlier in the 1930s. And she is the, the point person for organizing uh, African-American women's voter, women voters uh, for both the 1936, 1940, and 1944 campaigns. And what's fascinating about Fawcett is that she really illustrates very clearly how much the Democratic Party, like much of American society at the time, kind of doesn't know where to put African-American women. So she reports to the head of the women's division um, in 1940, for example, that that's a woman named Dorothy McAllister. Um, so she reports to McAllister in 1940. She also reports to the man who's the head of the, quote, Negro division of the DNC, but she is not officially part of either office. And it's this really sort of telling fact, right, that they don't, they can't quite get their heads around how to pitch to Black women. Do we pitch to them as African-American voters? Do we pitch to them as women voters? And and the white leadership of the DNC just can't. And so they're like, yes, we do both. And this woman does both. And it doesn't work very well. Um, 
Certainly there are black women who are doing work for the party that Fawcett is organizing. Um, also in 1936 and 1940, um, Gladys Tillett, who will go on to become the head of the women's division uh, after the 1940 campaign in 41. In 36 and 40, she's the head of the head organizer of the Speakers Bureau. So she's in charge of sending speakers out around the country to speak to women voters, female speakers. Um, and we have evidence that some of the speakers that she's sending out is, are African-American um, to speak to black audiences and she and Fawcett work together pretty well. But especially during the war, um, Fawcett gets increasingly frustrated over the course of World War II with what she sees as the administration's unwillingness to take a really strong stand on civil rights issues. And so in the run-up to the 1944 campaign, she starts working with Eleanor Roosevelt, who she's friends with. And as we know, you know, Eleanor is a strong proponent of civil rights throughout her career. Um, Fawcett and, and Eleanor start working together and they plan, their vision is for this series of interracial women's political meetings to support FDR's reelection campaign. And it's going to be the, the plan that they lay out is this series of smaller meetings sort of culminating in a big national meeting in New York City on Labor Day weekend. And when the president gets wind of these plans, when FDR finds out about this plan, he puts his foot down and tells Eleanor that you all absolutely, you and Ms. Fawcett cannot do this. Um, he, he basically forbids it from happening. And it's this incredibly frustrating and incredibly tantalizing moment because women's politics remains quite segregated for decades um, after after this this moment in 1944. And so the, the what if of what if Eleanor Roosevelt had been able to put, you know, the whole weight of, of her, of being Eleanor Roosevelt behind an effort to really intentionally integrate women's politics is so, you know, so, as I say, sort of tantalizing of what that could have led to. But she's told no, she's told that she can't do it. And this really infuriates uh, Fawcett. And she actually winds up uh, in September of 44, publicly sort of calling out the Democratic Party for their lack of action on uh, on civil rights. And she starts campaigning for Thomas Dewey, for the Republican nominee uh, for the last few weeks of the campaign. And she becomes a Republican Party act activist uh, from that point forward. And it's she's just a great sort of lens to look at how race is is working in the story that I'm telling. Now, why was 1944 Women's Year? So, so this is to do with uh, that demographic thing that I mentioned earlier. Because women are the majority of voters for the first time, or the majority of eligible voters for the first time, um, there's this. That's what they call it. Um, this is you know year Women's Year, Year of the Women. This is a phrase that in political history we associate. Um, with 1992, with this big, you know, burst of, of women into Congress in the 1990s, but they're using the phrase in 1944. And both campaigns are also, as I mentioned, really highlighting women on uh, on the, as speakers for the party. Um, the Republicans uh, make extensive use of a Connecticut Congresswoman, Republican Congresswoman named Claire Booth Luce. Um, Luce is a well-known woman. Um, she was a playwright in the 1920s, wrote the quite popular and well-known play just called The Women. Um, she's also the wife of Henry Luce, who was the publisher of Time and Life. Um, and so she 
is constantly out giving speeches, campaigning for Dewey in 1944. Um, she gives a, a rather inflammatory speech at the 1944 Republican National Convention in which she says that uh, basically blames President Roosevelt for, for the war deaths. Um, she gets completely killed for that speech, by the way, like all of the media, everybody's like, this is in poor taste. You do not do that in the middle of a war. Um, it it kind of backfires on her. Um, the Democrats, for their part, um, again, I mentioned Gladys Tillett, the head of the women's division, is quite visible, um, giving lots of speeches on the radio a lot, traveling all over the country, giving speeches. Um, there's also a woman named Helen Gahagan Douglas, who is running for Congress for the first time in 1944. Um, she will go on to serve uh, as a congresswoman from California until she loses uh, a fairly nasty campaign to Richard Nixon for the Senate in 1950. Um, but she also is very prominent, giving lots of speeches, gives a speech at the at the convention. The media really try to play up a rivalry between Douglas and Luce. Um, Douglas does her best to to tamp that down, but it, it doesn't really take. So there's constant sort of articles about about these women uh, as politics. So there's women elected officials, right? Congresswomen who are part of this, women political activists like uh, like Tillett who are part of it. Um, and then there's this belief that women are that one of the headlines that I that I saw was women will swing the pendulum um, for the campaign. There's really this belief that they are a critical factor, really for the first time. It's the first time that anybody's thought that about women voters, really since the very first time after uh, women had the full right to vote uh, nationwide after the 19th Amendment. Um, in 1920, they're like, oh, what are women going to do? But it's more sort of that they're unknown rather than that they actually think they're a swing constituency. Um, in 1944, they really, for the first time, think that that women are going to swing the election. Now, I, it was so interesting looking at Gladys Tillett and her being a working mother. Tell us a little about that. Yes, both she and uh, Dorothy McAllister, who preceded her, um, are both working mothers, which really surprised me, right? That you don't expect that in the, the 1930s and 1940s. Um, when Tillett becomes the head of the women's division in 1941, uh, two of her children are at college, but her youngest, Sarah, is uh, 15, so she's still at home. How Tillett makes this work is that she commutes between her home in Charlotte, North Carolina, and D.C. almost every week. And she has an office in her home in Charlotte. She employs a secretary who stays in Charlotte in that office. Um, and so she goes uh, back and forth all the time. Dorothy McAllister handled it somewhat differently. She actually brings her daughters with her. And so in uh, the 1940 census, she is in the, the 1940 census in Alexandria, Virginia, listed as head of household with her two daughters aged 10 and 14 uh, because her husband was a judge in Michigan where they were from. So he had to stay in Michigan. Um, she brings her daughters with her. And she certainly... Uh, employed some domestic workers to help to be home when the girls get home from school, for example. Um, there's no such thing as, as daycare or after school. There's no other way she could have done it. Um, but she's the one who's getting them out the door in the morning, getting them off to school. Um, and then after she does that, she's going across the Potomac. She's working in the late 1930s through the 1940 campaign. So what she's doing is something that's never been done before, which is trying to elect a president for a third consecutive term. And the fact that she's doing that while juggling raising these two daughters just astonished me uh, when I found that out. 1950s, what were some of the interesting findings you found about women in politics during that time? 
Yeah. So what's really interesting about the 1950s uh, is that um, women are still seen as a swing voting block. They are uh, they are still seen as the swing voting block, and Eisenhower in particular really values women as voters and women as workers. Um, finding a sort of feminist Eisenhower was one of the more surprising things in this project. Um, he really clearly, the woman, Bertha Adkins, who runs the women's division for him, gave an oral history interview in the 1960s, and she just said quite simply he had worked with women uh, who were very competent and good at their jobs during World War II, and he saw no reason why women shouldn't be able to continue doing that work. Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways. What's different about the 1950s is that with the Democrats, everything flows through the head of the women's division. The Republicans had always had a more robust sort of club network. There's this thing called the National Federation of Republican Women's Clubs that's active, and there's a women's division, and there's a uh, a group called Citizens for Eisenhower that's kind of a nonpartisan group that um, is also working to support Eisenhower's campaigns. And so there's a whole lot of different ways in which women are connecting with the administration um, in the 1950s. And again, they're still seen as the swing voting block. So a lot of the material is, again, speaking to women as women voters. Um, that's very much the mode that Bertha Adkins and her colleagues are working in. Um, but the structures are exactly the same. She gets hired, Adkins gets hired in 1950 to overhaul how the RNC works with women voters. Um, and she explicitly models what she's doing on what the Democrats have been doing. And so it's it was really interesting. I expected to see more of a difference um, when the parties switched, when Eisenhower got into office. And if you're looking at the work that they're doing, and even many of the arguments that Adkins is making um, they're pretty similar. It's again, we talk about this as the sort of consensus time of American politics in the early Cold War. And that that is really reflected in the similarities between what Adkins is doing and what her Democratic predecessors were doing. What is the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Yeah, I think the takeaway that I want is twofold. I think the fact that these women are here Right. There's that there, as I said at the beginning, there had been this notion that women kind of weren't in politics in this period. And and so just sort of blowing up that idea is really important because it normalizes women's presence in politics. Right. If women have always been active in politics, then their participation in politics should not be seen as as unusual. But also, I think it's important because people especially tend to talk about the post-war period, the second half of my book after World War II, as this time when you know homes and families were these apolitical spaces that women weren't talking about politics that you didn't talk about politics at home and that normally the people who are saying this are implying that that was better and what i saw was that both parties are explicitly politicizing that baby boom suburban home right both parties are corresponding with the women in those houses and saying it is your job as a as a citizen, as a voter, you should be as an active party member to go have political conversations with your friends and neighbors. We're going to mail you postcards and newsletters and all kinds of things to give you the facts and figures to be able to have those conversations. But it's your job to do that. And the again, the consistency and of that message to women throughout this time period was surprising, and I hope will will help erode this myth that there was this sort of 
allegedly better time when we didn't talk about politics at home. These women are talking about politics all the time. They might not be talking about it with their children, um, which I think is part of how it gets it gets sort of erased is that, you know, the children of the baby boom who are who are now obviously adults and having these conversations don't remember their moms talking about politics. But that's in part because the whole structure was built for women to do this work when their kids were at school. Right. While you're standing at the bus stop, while you're in line at the grocery store, you know, invite your friends over for coffee in the middle of the day. That was the structure. And that's why women are the ones who are doing it. That's why they're they're designed as the saleswomen of the party is because they're the ones who had the time as middle class housewives to do this work. Um, but that also means that it was kind of invisible from their children. Um, and I think that's part of why these women got, have been so thoroughly forgotten. Um in the time since they were at, when they were so influential. Well, we would like to thank you for being on the podcast. And can you briefly tell us the next project you're going to be working on? Yes. So the next project is um, about Bertha Adkins, the woman who worked for Eisenhower. Um, she's actually a lesbian, which is very unexpected <laughs> in the 1950s in Washington. Um, and so I want to, her partner, uh, Winifred Helms, also worked in Washington. And then I have a, a very good chronology of where, what the two of them were doing, what their lives were, um, basically from the 1950s until Adkins dies in 1982. And so I really want to just dig in and focus on that whole, like that whole long stretch of their lives and their careers um, because they're doing some really extraordinary things that we don't expect women to be doing. And I think it's so important to try to recover those stories and and enrich our our narratives of, of what was possible for women um, in the past. Thank you so much. And we'll be looking forward to that new book. Yes, thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.